0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's coming up to 4 o'clock and it's my last program, Tuesday, hunt time for 2019. So today we'll be looking at the Julian Assange meeting at the State Library last week, Gene Ethics with Bob Phelps, A Wrap Up of the Year in the Pacific with Nick McClellan, Anti Nuclear Activists and Activisms in Turkey and Plans for the Government to Build Nuclear Power Plants there, also Haiti Part 3 with Sasha Gillis Lakakis, and of course, Mr. Kevin Healy. So let's hear it for Kevin for the last of 2019 for Tuesday Home
2: Time. A week, Chad, listener, when a Saudi trained killer ran riot at the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World trained train killer air base and killed and injured a few trained killers, apparently unaware that his country is not at war with the U.S. of. Indeed, they are the closest of close friends, united in their love and respect for liberty, freedom and democracy. So we can assume, like after 9-11 when the perpetrators were also Saudis, that the U.S. will now be forced to invade even. Iraq and evil Afghanistan and have to liberate those countries all over again, despite the roaring success of that liberation although in fairness, the first invasion was so successful that it hasn't actually ended so they'll just have to hype up the ongoing invasion. The clown prince sent his apologies to Donald so that should take care of any Saudi responsibility. Sadly, irresponsibility. One notions that appalling Hoon's who came under attack from big primo scuttled them more last than the minister for caring business class relations christian portable profits finance profits minister matthias rotten to the et al which means for maybe the first time ever she must have done something good to paraphrase the sound of music under attack for voting against the smash the evil unions bill she ratted on a word they charged and that lot would be so distressed that anyone could rat on their word prompting that appalling to counter in a usual articulate way people can trust me more than they can trust the government which forces us to think about that tough one but yeah possibly that appalling by a short half head Not sure her decision had much to do with integrity, but interesting how we can interpret the same language in different ways. For instance, the Lord Rupert of Wapping, Sin and Media generally, call it the union-busting bill and mean it as a positive. A shattered scuttle then said, seriously, direct quote, the defeat of the smash-evil union's union-busting bill meant, and talk about injustice, bankers face tougher penalties than union thugs. Oh, no. How can bankers facing 23 million charges of money laundering, including child pornography, face tougher penalties than an evil union thug demanding a workplace be made safe? and likely using foul language, the language of thugs. No integrity legislation needed for the sophisticated bankers. They utilised nothing more criminal than a pen. Yet true to form, that out-of-control Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo, Anthony all being oozy, claimed the bill was work choices light, which we'd have to disagree with, despite our high regard for Anthony's integrity. Surely it's work choices heavy, work choices plus, This Israel Folau the Lord business, absolutely no idea why he deserved one cent, let alone millions, but on the ABC's Religion and Ethics Report, this good Christian woman defending his right to religious freedom told us there was nothing violent in what Israel said and keeps saying, and I thought... Which bit of eternity in the fires of hell is not violence? I had very unchristian thoughts of violence an hour or so later, watching the news report on former trained killer Jackie Lumpen sentencing no proper papers, queue jumping illegal boat people to death. Joining Scuttlebem, his successor as Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, that appalling Hoon son and the team, and on this issue, she was a walk-up start, in declaring those seeking refuge have no right to health care. Then the report crossed immediately to scuttle them and a couple of his mob, and Anthony all being oozy, Penny left wing and a couple of other socialist fighters for the working class having a great time together around a chrissy tree, exchanging presents and wishing each other a happy and holy, laughing their heads off, great mates expressing goodwill and all that immediately after Condemning people fleeing persecution to even more persecution, many of them fleeing True Blue Aussies' invasion of their countries, carried out by deep-thinking trained killers like Jackie Lumpen. Speaking of faith, doesn't it reinforce our already great faith in the socialists to see them sharing bonhomie with the executioners? But in fairness, Scuttlebim's true love-thy-neighbour, dear baby Jesus Humanity, Sean, when asked about a true blue Aussie citizen it is claimed is being mistreated in a Chinese prison. Look, we always have to stand up for our citizens and we have to be true to who we are as a people. Beautiful sentiment, Scuttlebim. I, I missed who you were talking about. I assume it's Julian Assange. Except, of course, when it would be wrong to stand up. Right to be true to who we are. We must strike a proper balance between our very, very close friend the US of and evil, evil China. Uh, but, 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 but it's our biggest trading partner. And let me say in that context, and only in that context, it's good China. But let's move on to the really important thing in life, well, things in life in that critical battle we also care about, the annual telly ratings, C9 has knocked off 7 for the top spot and the they must all be brain dead award of the week to all those viewers who did 9 a favour for the winner put its success down to those intellectually challenging cultural icons married at first sight Ninja Warrior and Lego Masters, <laughs> we've got to worry. Although it probably helps explain in microcosm our election results, turning the anaesthetised brain dead loose with a pencil in their hands. The beneficiaries scuttle them, slash the inefficient public sector, knowing, for instance, education is about what the caring business class needs at any given time. Indeed, many causes that contribute nothing to being a better, more flexible, more agreeable worker, which do nothing more than provide knowledge and useless information like history or literature or the arts or language, unless that's needed for a particular job. And for goodness sake, they might resort to working class history for instance heaven forbid should be banned in the that'll make us feel safe department they plan to have these paramilitary train killers wearing all the accoutrements of train killing patrol the airport carrying quote short barrel mk-18 rifles which apparently can kill heaps of people in many seconds and the reason they assure us is to assure us to make us feel safe and secure one ungrateful punter interviewed on the telly report i saw said how's this for ingratitude paramilitaries running around with high-powered weapons pointing at her would make her feel more insecure and afraid some people now the week that was mathematics poser of the week when does three equal ten and ten equal three and the answer yeah, it's easy. You would have got it. When supermarket giant Kills Value makes a promise. Like an extra ten cents on milk would go straight to the farmer. And in fact, the farmer received a fabulous and super generous three cents from Kills Value. Generous because it could have been two or one or even not. When sprung by the regulator, Kills Value explained the discrepancy, well assumed discrepancy, as the regulator misinterpreting its promise. The regulator Kills Value explained, thought mistakenly when we said the whole ten cents would go to the farmer, we meant the whole ten cents would go to the farmer. Hard to see how the regulator could have made such a huge mistake. And two in one. Our maths poser also provided a lesson in grammar. Also on maths, making a killing out of death, this mob called InvoCare. Real name, otherwise you wouldn't know what I'm talking about, and please don't say I never do. That hurts, that's insensitive. But InvoCare is all sensitivity. It runs all these funeral brands, including White Lady, and the ads tell us how sensitive and caring they are, and Simplicity, which they promote as bargain basement stuff, but consumer watchdog Joyce has dared attack them for adding a... $352 $352 late fee to its bill when it sends the bill out, when choice which choice someone understated as unnecessary. Well, the undertaker undertook to explain it makes collecting a late fee simplicity itself. Owen oh, Invercare made a small 40 mil profit in the first half of the year, and we can understand how. In the real world, where profit is the meaning of life, the True Blue capitalist review every fortnight does a reader survey on news items over the fortnight. Incidentally, the other week it asked whether during the catastrophic bushfires it was or wasn't the time to talk climate change. And unlike Scuttle them, 64% of readers said, yes, we need to talk about climate change, showing these aren't your average, highly intelligent Lord Rupert of Wapping sin reader. Anyway, this Last week they said the stock exchange index was up 19% to 6700 and the big question, do you think it will reach 7000 by the end of the year? But they omitted the most important option. All they offered was yes, no, don't know. What happened to don't care? I know the Americans have a bit of trouble with the English language as Henry Higgins sang or what passed as Rex Harrison singing. In America, they haven't used it in years. And some Republican polly proved the point this week attempting to defend his big supremo. The President did nothing wrong. He slaughtered the language. And they can't prove it. Which, of course, literally means they can't prove he did nothing wrong. So perhaps he made their case for them. Thus, finally, if he's a lawyer and someone said, this grammatical idiot's going to defend you, I think I'd plead guilty and throw myself at the mercy of. Good afternoon until February.
1: Mr. Kevin Healy. A meeting was held last Wednesday at the Victorian State Library Theatre. What follows is a segment of the proceedings with the title What is Happening to Journalism and Julian Assange.
3: Kristen Hrathen spent two decades of his working life as a journalist in Iceland and was named Icelandic Journalist of the Year three times in 2004, 7, and 2010 by Iceland's National Union of Journalists, who is the only journalist to ever receive this award three times. In his reporting on the collapse of Iceland's coupling Bank, he used documents from WikiLeaks. In 2010, he established Sunshine Press Productions in Iceland together with Julian Assange. Before taking over from Assange as Editor-in-Chief in, of WikiLeaks in September 2018, Rufson served as the platform's spokesperson for six years.
4: Good evening, Melbourne. I'm happy to be in the city. i happy to see the turnout here tonight. Uh, I can see that you are concerned, as I am, about the fate of the I am uh, particularly happy to uh, be here in the last sort of uh, the city tour that I am doing here on this visit. I was in Sydney, Canberra, and now in Melbourne. It is uh, an important place. This is the, after all, it's the uh, the birthplace of Wikileaks. This is where it all started, where the journey began in much happier times. In those happier times, uh, back in the days when uh, when things were easier, when Julie and I could sit and and talk freely about uh, the past, uh, he told me stories about what had uh, fired here in the city. And some of these stories came back to me today, driving through this uh, beautiful city. Stories of uh, uh, him putting up uh, the first uh, free Internet uh, service provider in the city. Him assisting the police uh, in eradicating a, a pedophile ring successfully. Now, this is the person I knew in the days, a person that uh, hasn't changed in his heart. This is what... Uh, learned about him when we discussed about discussed internet freedom and information freedom, me being this uh, square journalist from the mainstream media after 20 years of practice there, getting uh, a bit uh, desperate about uh, where mainstream media was going, and he coming from this environment, this background, but we shared ideals and uh, it uh, quickly aspired into friendship and then cooperation and uh, we became co-workers, and uh, the rest is history. I saw him in Belmarsh prison about a month ago. His state is deteriorating. It is absolutely uh, horrifying that a man, Julian Assange, should be sitting in a maximum security prison on remand under worse circumstances than most uh, terrorists who are serving sentences in that prison, according to lawyers who know the environment, and who have worked inside Belmar's prison. That is absolutely unacceptable that a journalist and a publisher that has done nothing wrong, done nothing but practiced journalism, he yet committed the crime of journalism, as we say, should be sitting there. When I come from these meetings and uh, finally get out of the three double-door locks and get my belongings back because I can't even take a pencil inside or a paper, It takes a while to get back faith in humanity because it's so heartbreaking to leave him behind inside there, seeing his health deteriorate, weight loss becoming more apparent, and slowly seeing the the light of life fading out of his eyes. It just cannot continue. A red line has been crossed. I don't have to go into much technical details because I'm fairly certain that most of you know the elements of the case, the overreach by the empire, by the U.S. empire, who is taking it up upon itself to have a universal jurisdiction, taking the right that they can fetch an Australian citizen into English territory for acts that were performed in England, in Germany, in Sweden, in my home country, Iceland. This is totally unacceptable. We cannot accept that. And for what? For what they call espionage. He is the first journalist who is indicted on the basis of a 101-year-old espionage act, a relic from the First World War, where actually lawmakers at the time were warning of the possible abuse of that legal framework. And it laid dormant for decades, up until the Obama administration when they found it in a drawer and started using it to persecute whistleblowers. We said at the time, this is only the beginning. This is laying the groundwork for what is to come. Whistleblowers first and the sources, but they will come after journalists. That's gonna be the next step. And now they've crossed that line as well. And Julian Assange is the first. Unless we do not take action and say enough is enough, he will not be the last. The precedent will be set of the extraterritorial reach and the use of this ridiculous legal framework to equate journalism with espionage. We must fight for his freedom and we must fight for his life because if he is extradited to the United States, he will end his life in a maximum security prison in the U.S. It is de facto a death penalty, if he is thrown on a rendition flight and flown across the Atlantic to the United States. Now, on my travel here uh, in the last few days, I have sensed that there is support, there is growing support for Julian Assange. I'm not saying I saw a lot of it in Canberra, but there is support among the general public. I have met probably on three meetings uh, or four meetings rather, including the, the National Press Club event yesterday, a hundred plus journalists. And I sensed that they understand the implication. You might say it's because of self interest, but wherever it comes from, they understand, they are beginning to understand the gravity of the situation. And it might be possibly because of what happened in June this summer, as you mentioned, the raids on journalists unprecedented here on the offices of ABC And in the home where they went through the private belongings of a journalist, that was a wake-up event. Maybe then they understood how close to home this is and how Julian is basically standing on the edge of a cliff, but they are slowly and gradually being pushed in the same direction. They will go off the cliff if Julian goes off. So it's their case. This movement that has been brought forward, of course, is uh, uh, partly to thank the good work of many individuals. and Some of you are here tonight, and I really want to thank you for your work. It doesn't often take takes numbers to change history. I often reflect back to the, the Dreyfus case. Uh, about 1895, I think, the uh, officer Dreyfus in France was brought before a court, sentenced to life imprisonment on the basis of treason. Of espionage. And if you reflect back to that history, it is a, an amazing similarity. And everybody in France knows of this case, and the people of outside France as well, because it's a symbolic case that of a, of a travesty of justice that should never be forgotten. Dreyfus was dragged in front of a secret court. Sounds familiar? They planted evidence, smeared his name, and in the end, he was sentenced to life imprisonment and sent to Devil's Island off the coast of Latin America to serve the rest of his remaining life. One commentator at the time, he described the atmosphere in Paris and in France as such that uh, the only regret the general public had about the Dreyfus case that the death penalty had just recently been abolished for violations of that nature. Such hatred was against Dreyfus. There was nobody in the beginning who stood up to defend his name, except one person, his brother, who just didn't want to see this happening, who who recognized the injustice and, of course, wanted to save his brother's lives. So he started campaigning, one man. And little by little, he made progress. He got the intellectuals on board. They started campaigning and writing. And, of course, we all know the, the famous front page letter by Emil Sola, Jacuzze, which he had to, had to pay a, a price for. He was actually sentenced for defamation, had to flee the country to London of all places, spent two years there. And the momentum grew because people argue with people when they see and get the evidence, when they are presented with the evidence and somebody cares and raises the alarm, and within 10 years, he was back in France, his reputation Reinstated, he was cleaned of all charges, offered back into the military, and served in the First World War. It took ten years, going from absolute zero, from death, to restored life. So even though times are dark, you'd never give up. Crowd of one man in the street, holding a sign, a group of individuals, fighting. It's not the numbers. It's a principle. And I sense... The numbers are growing. More and more people are aware that this is unacceptable and we must fight it. We need to use the momentum. We need to convince the journalists to write the truth about what's going on in this country and elsewhere. And we need the journalists and the public to put a pressure on the politicians in this country. absolutely done nothing to help Julian Assange. That is unacceptable. An Australian citizen should be abandoned by his own government. And you should all tell the the politicians that it's unacceptable. But we should not give up. There's a fight ahead and we don't have much time. There's a hearing on the extradition on, on February 25th. But that's not the end of it. There will be appeals. But I'm certain that justice will prevail because it's the right thing to do. Enough people will understand slowly and gradually that they don't want the dishonor having to answer questions from their children or their grandchildren in the future when they are asked, where were you? Did you stay silent? Did you do nothing? Or did you help Julian Assange? That's the right thing to do. I hope that you will assist me and all others in raising the alarm and get him out of this place that he's in. Thank you.
1: And that's our Icelandic journalist, Christian Hufson, who's the editor-in-chief of Weekly since 2018. And we all need to do our bit. Look online for support for Julian Assange, and I'm sure you'll find plenty of spaces there for you. And on this last program for Tuesday Home Time, I'm speaking with journalist, researcher and author, Nick McClellan, do you call active Pacific diplomacy, what do you mean by that?
5: Well, I think it's really important to recognise that Pacific Island countries, Pacific Island governments, community organisations, trade unions and others are very active addressing the global challenges that we all face. You know, you read a lot of the media coverage about the Pacific in Australia and it's noted by a number of factors. Firstly, it's often about China. It's not about the Pacific Islands. It's about the fear of China in some circles in Australia, and that's played out into the Pacific. And Pacific Islanders are portrayed as weak and vulnerable and open to exploitation, therefore a security threat to Australia. So most of the discussion is about China and Australia, not about the Pacific Islands. And that really... Covers up the fact that Pacific Island governments and communities are actively engaging with the very questions we are. Most of the challenges facing the Pacific nowadays are global challenges, and they're ones that Australians are grappling with as well. The obvious challenge is climate change. Often the media presents climate change as a Pacific issue, but at a time that large parts of New South Wales are on fire, Um, we have to recognise that this is a challenge that faces Australia just as much as our Pacific Island neighbours. Similarly, China, Australian governments, companies, trade unions and others are grappling with how to engage with a rapidly growing economic industrialised power like China. What are the economic, security, cultural implications of all of that? Uh, It's not rocket science that we're struggling with that. Um, Similarly, Pacific Island neighbours are similarly grappling with China the pandemic of violence against women. It's often presented, you know, all these violent societies in the Pacific, yet I live not far from where a a young woman was attacked on the Merry Creek Trail just a few days ago. There's A a woman dies in Australia every week from uh, family-related violence. This is a global issue once again. So I think the framing of the Pacific as this weak, vulnerable, isolated region is really deceptive And we've seen that because Pacific governments have been reactive politically, diplomatically, and you only have to look this week in Madrid where, as members of the Alliance of Small Island States, Pacific governments are quite forthright um, lobbying against positions taken by major powers like the United States, like Australia and others, that really threaten their existence.
1: 2019's been a year for issues of self-determination. We've had New Caledonia, just recent vote in Bougainville, West Papua, the people there are determined to get their vote on the referendum for self-determination. How do you see those progressing during 2019?
5: It's been a significant year for the debate. One feature of uh, the debate about self-determination is it's a pretty sensitive topic for some Pacific governments and that's hamstrung regional organisations like the Pacific Islands Forum like the uh, Melanesian Spearhead Group, which unites um, four countries and the FLNKS independence movement. Within the forum, for example, which unites Australia, New Zealand and 16 island countries, uh, a number of the larger countries, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, are very reluctant to take up the issue of self-determination in West Papua, for example. They uh, see this as part of sovereign Indonesian territory while they're happy to discuss human rights, they've always blocked the forum from addressing the question of the right to self-determination, which is one of the principal rights in the UN Human Rights Charter, in all of the major political charters on economic, social, cultural rights, on civil and political rights. The right to self-determination is a core human right, but um, there's a reluctance to debate it, that these countries may one day move towards not only greater autonomy... Sovereign and political independence But the reality of the situation won't go away And so we've seen in New Caledonia A country just 1800 kilometres off the coast of Queensland A major movement for independence Particularly with the Indigenous Kanak population But also with supporters from other communities A referendum was held in November 2018 Opinion polling was suggesting that the independence movement Might get 25-30% of the, the support in fact, they got 43%, not a victory, obviously, but certainly close enough to 50% to uh, inspire the movement to, to keep going. And it was a real shock, both for the French state and for conservative anti-independence parties in New Caledonia, that the independence movement did so well. Um, in elections in May this year, May 2019, the independence movement picked up another seat in Congress. So there is uh, now 26 Seats in favour of independence, 28 against. So it's a, you know, it's a really interesting balance within the Congress of New Caledonia, their local parliament. Now, another referendum has been announced under the framework agreement known as the Namir Accord to hold a second referendum on independence in September 2020, 6th of September 2020. So this debate about New Caledonia will continue um, as the uh, campaign once again for independence ramps up throughout uh, the coming year. Bougainville, as people will have seen from the papers, has just completed a referendum. The counting is uh, underway today, and so we'll know probably by the end of the week um, whether Bougainvillians, uh, more than 200,000 Bougainvillians who've gone to the polls, have voted either for greater autonomy within New Guinea or, once again, for full and sovereign independence. This vote is not binding, however it goes to the um, negotiations between the autonomous Bougainville government and uh, the PNG government, and ultimately has to be decided by the parliament of PNG. So it's going to be some time before there's a, a decision, but the the polls suggest that um, a majority, um, some say a substantial majority of Bougainvillians will vote yes in favour of full independence, and that's going to throw a, a challenge out both to Port Moresby and to Canberra because Australia has been very wary about the creation of new and independent states in our region. The other Melanesian country on the boil, obviously, is West Papua. You know, over the last year, we've seen significant human rights violations once again by the Indonesian forces. After an incident where Indonesian road workers were attacked in December uh, 2018 and a number killed by guerrillas, there was a massive crackdown by the Indonesian armed forces in West Papua. Thousands, tens of thousands of people fled from Nduga Regency, which is a district in uh, central uh, West Papua. There were a number of people died in the bush from lack of food, lack of shelter, and Indonesia's military cracked down on that regency, that district, for for quite a period, early in 2019. Then there was incidents in the middle of the year where West Papuan students studying elsewhere in uh, Indonesia, in Surabaya and other places, came under attack both with racist jibes but also with a physical assault by right-wing extremist militias within Indonesia. And there were student protests around the country and that then spurred action within West Papua and in Jayapura, the capital, in Wamana, a major town in the highlands, there were protests, riots, violence, uh, deaths. So Indonesia sort of claims that the, the independence movement in West Papua is, is uh, on the decline but that's clearly not the case, and West Papuans have followed with interest uh, developments in New Caledonia, in Bougainville. Uh, they say, obviously, that if a province of Papua New Guinea can break away and become a new and independent nation, why can't uh, West Papua, as provinces of Indonesia, break away to become an independent nation? So there's a lot of cross-fertilisation in these struggles. I think it's going to be very much on the regional agenda in 2020 and in years to come.
1: You're saying there's been a lot of violence and blood spilt during 2019 in West Papua, but surely, Nick, this has been getting, going on for decades. I can remember years and years ago they were talking about West Papua as the, the forgotten East Timor, long before East Timor got independence, and they, everyone talked about the violence there, but they didn't or very seldom mentioned West Papua. And, of course, the other issue is the resources that there are in West Papua. They, used to call it one of the richest real estate areas in the world. Indonesia is not going to give that up lightly.
5: No, indeed. And there's um, indeed mining interests and resource interests in all of the self-determination struggles that I've mentioned. Yes. Um, New Caledonia, as we've talked about on the program before, has about 25% of the world's nickel. It's an enormous strategic resource. The whole Bougainville conflict uh, has involved debate about the giant Gold and copper mine at Panguna. Indeed, that mine was shut down in 1988-1989 at the start of the what became the Bougainville War, where up to 20,000 people died during a nearly decade-long conflict. Uh, freeport mine in the Grasberg Mountains of West Papua, as you say, is a huge resource. Indeed, uh, the, the contracts between the Saharto regime uh, that came to power in the, the coup of 1965, the massacre of some say up to a million people uh, who supported the Indonesian Communist Party. The first international contract for foreign investment signed by the New Order Sahota regime was with Freeport McMoRan, uh, who run the mine uh, up in the Grasberg Mountains. You're absolutely right. The debate about resources and who controls those resources is a central element of these struggles. And one of the interesting features is there's a lot more players now So we've seen in Bougainville and in New Caledonia that China is expanding its interest for natural resources globally and through things like the Belt and Road Initiative is looking to invest in uh, resources and mining. Historically, uh, Melanesian countries had a lot of connection with Asian powers like Taiwan, Japan and others, Korea, for fishing and for forestry. There are a lot of Malaysian logging companies historically in Solomon Islands, in Papua New Guinea and so on. But now the People's Republic of China is very active in this terrain. And uh, one of the things that's driving Australian paranoia about the region is the perception that China, rather than Western mining companies, might step in to um, uh, get involved in these resource projects. Just uh, this week there's been discussion that the Brazilian company Vale is uh, looking to sell its nickel smelter in New Caledonia, one of three nickel smelters in the country, and, uh, there's talk that who's got deep enough pockets to buy a, a multi-billion dollar smelter? And the obvious answer is China. But that will cause, you know, a level of anxiety for the French government and for the Australian government uh, to have the Chinese involved so openly in uh, resource uh, management and resource exploitation in neighbouring island countries.
1: Can we just look back a little to the other small nation-states in the Pacific, how did they achieve their independence or ones who haven't yet achieved their independence?
5: The Pacific came late to the decolonisation struggle in the 20th century. You know, there were waves of of countries moving towards political independence in uh, Africa, particularly during the 1950s, as British, French, Portuguese colonialism collapsed. Some uh, empires collapsed later than others and so for example portugal which had uh, uh, held power in mozambique in uh, angola in east timor in guinea bissau lost a lot of its colonies much later than uh, the british empire for example which uh, you know saw a massive wave of decolonization and 1960 was the turning point where the united nations adopted two key resolutions on decolonization and those um, in turn saw the the growth and expansion of the role of the, what's called the Committee of 24, the UN Special Committee on Decolonization, which is the international body charged with supporting countries to move towards a referendum on self determination, where they could either choose independence, to some sort of form of autonomy or free association, or to stay with the colonial power. And so it was at that period in the early 60s the pacific countries began to get on board with the decolonization struggle the first independent country in the pacific was western samoa a new zealand territory uh, which gained independence in 1962 and indeed at that time dutch new guinea uh, what we now know as uh, west papua but at the time under colonial rule by the netherlands in 1961 they set up the new guinea council they wrote a new national anthem Uh, raised the flag, famously the morning star flag, the symbol of West Papua nationalism, was raised on the 1st of December 1961. So it was a time when countries in the Pacific began looking to sovereignty. So it happened much later than other parts of the world in Africa and Asia, but it began at that time and many countries during the 1960s and 70s moved relatively peacefully to independence The one empire that refused to let go is France. And as we know, France, not only last century, but into the 21st century, has maintained its control over New Caledonia, over French Polynesia, Wallace and Futuna, And so it's not just in Melanesia that there's independence movement, but in Guam, the American territory, which is used for military bases, a third of the uh, territory is, is under the control of the U.S. military. The Chamorro people there are struggling for independence. The Maui people of French Polynesia are campaigning for independence. So this is an issue across a number of territories right across the Pacific Ocean. And we're basically the the islands are late to the party, but the issue isn't going away. And similarly, it's not going away elsewhere in the world. And you only have to look at Europe, where the, the question of the national question, as Karl Marx used to talk about it, is on the card. So you think of the Catalan struggle in uh, in Spain or the uh, Scottish movement uh, towards independence with the the elections um, coming up. Uh, the Scottish Nationalist Party looks like they're doing very well in the elections and there's a push by Nicola Sturgeon, the current leader of the SNP in Scotland, to hold a second referendum on independence. So this is a uh, a question about sovereignty, but also about the rights of workers, about the rights of people um, living under, under federal rule and feeling alienated from the decisions being taken in London, in Port Moresby, in other places like that.
1: Just thinking about the people in the Pacific moving out of their countries to find work, particularly in Australia, and I'd imagine it happens in New Zealand. How are those people getting looked after? Are they getting looked after?
5: There's a lot of debate about this um, because uh, in recent years, over the last decade, both Australia and New Zealand have opened up their labour markets, not just to skilled workers, but to so-called unskilled workers and people particularly going into things like fruit picking in Australia and New Zealand's horticulture industry. You know, Australia's always been eager to take skilled migrants from the Pacific Islands region, accountants, doctors, lawyers, um, uh, rugby players, other people with skills that are useful in the Australian economy. But for many years, right up until the Howard years in Australia, there was a resistance to taking workers who were farmers and fishermen, fisherwomen, to come and work in uh, semi-skilled jobs in the horticulture industry. That's opened up now under things like the uh, Seasonal Worker Program in Australia or New Zealand RSE, recognised seasonal employer scheme and a new Pacific Labor scheme created by the Coalition which allows visas for up to three years in certain areas. But many of these sectors, like horticulture, are rife with exploitation in australia um horticulture industry fruit picking and so on has often relied on backpackers and gray nomads in australia done a lot of cash in hand these are sectors that are very poorly organized by the trade union movement thanks to the awu and other unions that haven't really done the legwork needed for that sort of organization because of the casualized and rapidly changing worker base and so um pacific workers coming into this area face uh, danger of exploitation of poor conditions of wage deductions or conditions and so on that um, are rife for for problem so one of the big struggles has been uh, by the trade unions within the pacific to get involved in the regulation of these schemes something that's been resisted by governments in australia and in the pacific to ensure that workers who do come to earn a better salary than they can earn at home are not exploited by um, industry in Australia.
1: But it must have been foreseen that this was likely to happen.
5: Oh yeah, and there's been, a, there's been some carefully designed elements of the seasonal worker program that make it much better than schemes like the working holidaymaker visa, which is the, basically the backpacker visa introduced um, and expanded. Indeed, Scott Morrison's government has expanded the backpacker program. Previously, you could get a second year on your backpacker visa by working for 88 days, nearly three months, in a rural or regional area. So a lot of backpackers went um, to um, or went to work uh, for three months uh, in, a, in a rural area picking fruit, and that earned them the, the right to get a second year on their visa for holidaying. But now that's been expanded to a third year, and what you're seeing is that backpackers are coming not just to have a holiday and earn a bit of cash on the side, but to work for those three years uh, because the schemes have been expanded to countries like Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia and many other countries, and uh, Korea and and Taiwan. And you're seeing workers come to follow the harvest trail for the full period of their working Holiday Maker's visas. So these are, in fact, a subsidised labour scheme rather than a way for rich backpackers to earn a bit of money while they're uh, wanting to buy a combi to go, go surfing. That's caused enormous problems with massive exploitation and wage theft from backpackers in the horticulture sector, just as we see in the hospitality sector, where a lot of cafes and restaurants are are, are using uh, workers uh, with little concern for their rights, for their wages, and that's extending to franchises and so it's been Domino's Pizzas, the Grilled Hamburger Group and many others that are involved in the exploitation of overseas workers. And the fundamental problem, be they from the Pacific or from other parts of the world, is that seasonal workers don't have the rights of citizenship. Their fellow workers alongside Australians. They have the same right to good wages, good conditions, protection from sexual harassment and so on. But as non-citizens on a visa... They can often be threatened by their employer who will report them to the immigration department if they stand up and resist exploitation, if they stand up to form a union or to work alongside their Australian colleagues to get pay rises and things like that. So it's a really important struggle for the Australian labour movement not to see foreigners as taking their jobs, but to work alongside foreigners who are here on temporary visas because this is now a structural part of the Australian economy and Pacific workers are, are part of this. There's more than uh, 1.2 million, some say up to 1.8 million, if you count New Zealanders. 1.8 million people on temporary work visas in Australia, ranging from skilled worker visas to backpacker holiday makers to seasonal workers and so on. That's a structural part of the Australian economy, and it's not going away. Trade unions here, trade union, trade unionists, workers need to be thinking about how they work alongside the temporary workers, non-citizen workers, who are now a structural part of the Australian economy.
1: And if you go back more than 100 years ago, you have what happened to the, the islanders in off the coast of Queensland, and that was what became known as blackbirding.
5: Pacific countries are very aware about Australia's history in, in relation to this. Going back to 1847 in New South Wales, 1860 in Queensland, people uh, reached out to the Pacific Islands uh, seeking labor through the colonial labor trade for um building new industries like cotton and sugar uh, at the time of the American Civil War the, the south which generated a lot of the cotton industry for the British empire was obviously entangled in the the war um and so the cotton industry began in Australia and uh, indentured laborers um were brought to Australia from particularly Melanesia countries like Solomon Islands uh New Caledonia, uh, Vanuatu, and used as labour. And that continued um, uh, for many years until Australia federated and the colonies of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria came together at federation. One of the first pieces of legislation of the new federation was the Pacific Islanders Laborers Act. And that saw the expulsion of uh, the people who at that time were dubbed Kanaka's these Pacific Island indentured labourers who've been working in the sugar fields in, in the cotton plantations in Australia. and Thousands of Pacific Islanders were deported back to their homelands. And those that stayed are known as the uh, ASI, the Australian South Sea Islanders. South Sea Islanders have often intermarried into Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, Queensland particularly, northern New South Wales, but they're not indigenous people and so they don't have the rights land rights and support that comes from government for indigenous communities in Australia. And so you've got this problem where Australian South Sea Islanders have often faced very tough conditions. Uh, There's a wonderful new resource called Hard Work, which is a bibliography produced by Professor Clive Moore in Queensland that has a lot of information about the Australian South Sea Islander community. And they're organising today to claim their rights. And people in the Pacific are very aware of the history of black burning. They're very aware of the legacies of the colonial labor trade, which extend right across the region with say, the descendants of the Indian Girimichia, who were indentured laborers working in uh, Fiji in Sugar. In uh, Hawaii, it was Japanese and Chinese working in the the Dole Corporation pineapple plantations. This labor trade has deep roots and often regarded as slavery in the past during the colonial era, That's where Pacific Islanders are very aware about uh, possible exploitation in Australia in the contemporary seasonal worker schemes.
1: Finally, Nick, back to our illustrious Prime Minister, Morrison. How is his Pacific step-up going?
5: Well, the problem with the Pacific step-up, that's the term used to describe greater engagement uh, with the Pacific Islands, uh, first announced by Malcolm Turnbull, but uh, really stepped up by um, Prime Minister Morrison since a speech he gave at Lavrak Army Barracks in 2018. No surprise about the choice of venue. This is really in the news for a variety of reasons. Once, as we mentioned at the beginning, it's very much driven by paranoia about China. Chinese political influence and uh, strategic influence is seen as a major security threat uh, to um, the hard heads of the Security Intelligence Committee in, in Australia. Uh, the perception of Chinese political advance is really driving a lot of this policy. Only this year, two countries in the Pacific, Solomon Islands and Kiribati, uh, changed their uh, diplomatic relations from Taiwan towards the People's Republic. So there's now only four countries in the Pacific Islands Forum that are aligned with Taiwan rather than with uh, Beijing. And so there's a big feature of the step-up. There's also a real khaki tinge to the Pacific step-up. Um, a lot of it's driven around uh, military deployments, around the Pacific patrol boat program, the creation of a new national security college, which is going to be training people from the Pacific. That's operating out of the Australian National University. Canberra's funding a major, what they're calling the Pacific Fusion Centre, which is a, an intelligence body uh, providing real-time uh, monitoring and intelligence sharing around things like uh, maritime surveillance uh, illegal fishing and drug smuggling other matters like that so the the security and intelligence element of the step up is a really central feature there are elements like the uh, labor scheme pacific labor scheme that are very much more welcomed by pacific countries and communities but um a lot of this is driven by the step up is driven by australia's national security rather than the security of the region And that's a problem because our Pacific Neighbours have been trying to redefine the security debate in 2018 at the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting held in Nauru. Leaders drafted and adopted a declaration known as the Boy Declaration. Boy's a a district in Nauru where this declaration was signed by all forum members, including Australia. And the Boy Declaration explicitly... It's interesting to read. It talks about redefining security and broadening the security agenda to take in human security, environmental security and other elements of security beyond the traditional state-centred national security or transnational crime, drug smuggling and other elements, which have always been on the regional agenda and on the forum's agenda. Pacific countries are saying our biggest security threat is environmental And developmental, it's not about going to war with some power. There's a a mismatch between Australia's perceptions of regional security, driven by strategic denial and keeping China and other threatening powers away. Rather, it's about human security. And, of course, as we all know, the biggest threat to human security, both in Australia and internationally nowadays, is climate change. And there's a fundamental flaw in the Pacific step-up. We can't be... A good regional neighbour, while we have such shit-house climate policies. And uh, that was shown this year in Tuvalu, as, as we talked about on the programme. I was a journalist reporting on the Pacific Islands Forum this year when Scott Morrison attended his first forum leaders' meeting, and there was a massive, massive barney over climate policy, where Australia actively worked to block discussion of the key demands from the Pacific. On climate finance, such as providing replenishment for the Green Climate Fund. On loss and damage, uh, the existing damage, um, such as Cyclone Winston, Cyclone Pam, and so on. Not future damage from climate change, but existing damage uh, that's a, a top area of discussion. Pacific countries wanted Australia not to use the carryover credits from the Kyoto period. These are credits earned um, by Australia mainly through land clearing, uh, reclamation, and so on early on. And they're using this accounting trick, basically, uh, to say we're going to meet our targets. And Angus Taylor, notoriously uh, inefficient energy minister, is currently in uh, uh, Madrid trying to spruik this issue. But the Pacific countries have been joined, not just by a few, but more than 100 countries have already said that they don't support the use of uh, Kyoto-era carryover credits to reach targets. Pacific governments are calling for much more urgent, much faster action on climate change And, indeed, calling for no opening of new coal mines like Adani and the Galilee Basin, uh, a rapid phase-down of uh, the coal industry. And so you're seeing from both the Liberal Party and, indeed, from key elements of the Labor Party, a reluctance to engage with the science and to follow through with the policy action that's needed to address the science. There's a need, according to the World Meteorological Organization, for a three-fold increase in current pledges before the Paris Agreement to reach two degrees safely, or a five-fold increase in the current pledges that will keep us below 1.5 degrees. Now, that's the objective of the Paris Agreement. So the scientists, the meteorologists, the people studying the long-term implications of climate change are saying we need a five-fold increase in action. So every time... Scott Morrison or Angus Taylor says we're going to meet our targets in a canter, the current targets are not good enough and everyone knows this and everyone knows that we're supposed to be ramping up ambition, not saying we only generate 1.3% of greenhouse gas emissions uh, so it's no responsibility this is a, a hot button issue for the Pacific and it's an issue that's not going away next year Vanuatu will host the Pacific Islands Forum The year after that, Fiji will host in 2021. Then it's Kiribati's turn in 2022. So that's mapped out over the next few years. Australia is going to get hammered every year at the forum about its climate policies until we as citizens force our government to change tack.
1: As you know, Nick, this is my last program for the year, so I'd like to thank you again each year I do this at the end of the year for your contribution during this year.
5: Well, look, it's great to have the opportunity to to talk with you regularly on 3CR. You know, community radio has always been one of the places where different perspectives from the mainstream media can be presented, where the voices from the Pacific can be amplified, where trade unionists, where community groups, where feminists and others can have a say uh, unfiltered. And so it's a real pleasure always to be involved with 3CR, Hope that listeners uh, will not only have a a good break over the summer, but will come back and continue to support 3CR in 2020.
1: Thanks, Nick. And we are very fortunate to have Nick on 3CR, where he started many, many years ago. I believe it was Asia-Pacific Currents, uh, where he put his foot in in the first place, and look where he's gone from there. That's um, it for Nick for this year, but um, there's still a little bit to go, and also the wine.
3: Summertime. Summertime brings wine. Pass me my Prosecco. Out on the patio. This year's Delicious Radical Radio Wines are generously sponsored by Breast Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a grazed glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3 crorg dot au forward slash shop Wines is a 3cr
1: supporter now to bob helps from the genetics network last program for the year bob it's been a very busy year for you
6: yes well in genetics 32 year history i think it's been the busiest year ever and a lot of it's of course been engagement with governments which is mostly been nasty the Morrison government and also the Marshall government in South Australia have been beating up on us quite um, consistently but we're not going to give up yet we have much to report and much to do in 2020
1: we'll just stay with South Australia for a moment what's what's your problem there
6: government introduced regulations last month to lift the GM moratorium in South Australia and they did that without reference to the parliament to their credit, um, the crossbench, the, the party and the crossbench, the South Australia Best Members of Parliament, two MPs who are still Nick Xenophon team, rebadged, uh, they voted against the regulations when they came up before the, the upper house and so that was overturned. But the very next morning, this is last week, Uh, the South Australian government introduced a bill to um, do the same thing, that is to leave Kangaroo Island, which is GM-free, and getting substantial premiums for its GM-free products, to leave them with their GM-free ban, but to lift the ban at the rest of the state on the basis that farmers are saying, oh, we need the choice to spray more Roundup over our crops, become more efficient and profitable, and all the other furious arguments that they put. The vote's on today, in which the South Australian Parliament will have to decide whether or not the the rest of South Australia stays GM-free or not. And we're um, working very hard with the Labor Party and with the SA Best MPs to show them that there are fantastic opportunities, not only demonstrated by Kangaroo Island, but also the fact that South Australia this year extended its ban on GM crops until 2029, that uh, in the right management, their food industry and their farmers can benefit greatly from not having genetically manipulated crops or other organisms uh, in the state, and that would continue till 2025.
1: I'd imagine they're trying to get it through before the the break.
6: Well, they are. In fact, uh, the the Parliament finished last week, but they're having a special sitting just to deal with the, um, the bill to lift the moratorium. So it's going to be very interesting. It shows, I think, how hard Crop Life International has been pushing on the government, how hard the National Farmers Federation has been pushing, and also within the state, the grain growers and a number of other organisations. But canola is only two percent of South Australian agriculture now. The benefits would be vanishingly small, but as far as they're concerned, it's a matter of principle. They want the whole of... Australia with the exception of Tasmania to have said yes we love GM crops and we're going to grow them despite the fact that all that's available is roundup tolerant canola and cotton which is not grown in South Australia of course only in southern Queensland and northern New South Wales. Well
1: they seem to in Australia have done a pretty good job of beating the the farming areas into submission haven't they?
6: Well yes and of course, um, it's the European model. That great book, uh, Bruce Pascoe's book, Dark Emu, recounts that, in fact, Indigenous Australians for thousands of years been sustainably harvesting uh, not only the bush tucker, but also doing cropping, uh, animal management, and really managing this continent in a sustainable way for all those thousands of years for a very substantial population of Indigenous people. Of course, Europeans came, disrupted those systems, applied European technology methods, brought the hard-hoofed cows and sheep onto the very fragile landscapes and really have mismanaged Australia very, very badly over the last couple of hundred years. We now need to re-examine those systems that were in place before and to develop some new ones that are going to see Australia being able to feed, house and clothe its population into the future. Instead, I think we're embarked on a course in which uh, we're going to become not food secure. We're going to have to rely on imports to uh, even feed the Australian population if we're not very careful. So this vision is taking us really down the wrong path. $100 billion is just um, a fantasy in the sky, and we need to get real about the, um, the systems that we need to put in place here, particularly the organic, biodynamic and other uh, soil-nurturing systems and water-retaining systems, like we, the regenerative systems that are now written about and are gradually being rolled out with a lot of resistance from agribusiness and from government. Those are the systems that we should be investing our future in.
1: Where are they being rolled out, Bob?
6: In little places around the world, I just yesterday saw the preview of a film called The Biggest Little Farm. It's uh, an American documentary about a couple of uh, dreamers, really, who went on to land in Southern California, which was in drought, which was as hard as a rock, was producing nothing, and on a couple of hundred acres over the past uh, nine years, have created a little paradise by working in harmony with nature by uh, understanding that uh, farms are an ecosystem as well and they need to have within them the diversity that will allow them to withstand severe drought, which Southern California has had uh, for years. But you've got this little green patch of verdant farm in a very funny film, The Biggest Little Farm, which I'd recommend everybody go and see. Uh, It opens on the 16th of January around Australia, and really it's um, great entertainment. I think uh, it's family viewing, take the kids along. It's just a wonderful film, life-affirming. I think shows what can be accomplished and what should be the model for the farming systems in Australia as well, really in keeping with the messages that I've just been trying to recount. Instead of going down the path of agribusiness and the, the fantasies of um, of ma- getting profits and becoming rich and famous of actually nurturing the land and through biodiversity, biodiverse animals, crops, and plants of all kinds creating ground cover, what we see in the movie is that just adjacent are abandoned industrial systems. For instance, we get an aerial view, of um, a hen house where there were 2.3 million chickens being reared until the whole system collapsed under it, the weight of its own stupidity and it's still there, the remains of that uh, silliness, next to this wonderful little couple of hundred acres on the big little farm in southern America. It really is um, a great movie and I'd recommend anybody to go and see it as well as reading some of the books, the Darky New Book by Bruce Pascoe, uh, Charles Massey's wonderful new book, um, the, Tale of the Reed Warbler, which is about regenerative agriculture, and look at some of Peter Andrews' work on the um, succession farming, and the management of land and water in New South Wales, which is starting to be a success out near Braidwood.
1: Well, another issue that you've been battling to, and will continue to battle is um, the push to dismantle Australia's GM regulatory system.
6: Yes, this is an area in which we've had, unfortunately, a bit of a loss recently. Um, The Greens, to their credit, tried to disallow the deregulation of a lot of new genetic manipulation techniques in the Senate in uh, November and, uh, of course, the Labor Party joined with the government saying uh, that they would keep an eye on the situation, but um, allowing a lot of new GM techniques to um, go under the the, uh, regulator's radar so that um, new crops, animals and microorganisms can now come into the Australian farming system and into our environment without any regulation at all. So that was really a very, very disappointing outcome. But... We're ready for the next round, and what we believe will now happen is that the Food Standards of Australia and New Zealand may move also in the direction of deregulating those same techniques and the food products that they produce. These will be animal products, microorganisms uh, for various purposes, food production purposes, and also crops. I think we're going to have another, in the early New Year, probably another battle there. The federal government, of course, has embarked on cutting red and green tape, as they do, streamlining systems. They claim to be raising regulatory burdens on industry. The only burden that we see, of course, is the burden of proof that it's on industry that its products are safe and that they work properly as claimed. And there's been no evidence over the last 25 years of genetic manipulation that any of the um, of the crop plants or the animals or the microorganisms that were delivered really did what they claimed. All we've got is uh, the Roundup-tolerant crops that can be sprayed more often at higher doses. So we've got more Roundup residues in our environment and in our food. We've now got thousands of court cases worldwide against Monsanto as a result of the damage that Roundup has done to the health of particularly those who sprayed it on farms and in other land management it needs to be phased out not encouraged by having a new round of crops that are able to tolerate being sprayed with the glyphosate herbicides so that you get a better weed kill while the crop plant is able to survive it's an insane approach to agriculture and that's why something like the biggest little farm uh, could serve as a model for uh, the way that farming could go here in the future in Australia. Finally,
1: Bob, you said it's been a, an exceptional year for you. In a f- few words, what were the high points?
6: So busy that it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to call the wins. But um, yes, I think that those wins in the courts in the USA for um, the people who are, whose health has been terminally damaged by non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think that's a big breakthrough. Other battles that we have on our hands, um, of course, CSIRO has just come out as a result of the deregulation that I've uh, referred to in the federal government with its plans for synthetic biology to uh, build new organisms that nature never created that humans think they can. CSIRO now has this program called Synthetic Biology, in order to um, create organisms from scratch to put them to work doing agriculture, industrial processing and a range of other things, Uh, they pose a huge number of hazards and that I think will be another challenge for us in 2020 along with the deregulation of gene food, trying to uh, cope with the progressive deregulation that uh, the Morrison government is embarked on in... uh, GM, chemicals and agriculture generally. But we live in hope. Uh, we have, you know, as I said, look up the biggest little farm, have a look at the shorts and see that there are other ways to do it. And we're going to be starting to or continuing to demand that uh, research and development resources be put into sustainable systems of feeding, housing and clothing Australians for future generations.
1: And that is Bob Phelps from the, <coughs> excuse me, the Gene Ethics Network. Been going for 32 years, nearly as long as 3CR. And another idea: if you're into spending this month, 3CR are selling Kafir Palestinian scarves, in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. Next on this last program of mine for the year 2019, Sasha Yeliz-Lakakis, presenter of the Latin American Update program on 3CR on Sunday mornings at 10.30 with his third talk looking at the history of Haiti. And many thanks to Sasha for the contribution to Tuesday Hometime over this year.
0: And this brings us to the third and final instalment of our special about Haiti, Once the Freest, Now the Poorest. Haiti in 1915 found itself under the direct rule of the United States, one of several Latin American countries at around this time that was not only within Washington's informal sphere of influence, but actually controlled by the empire, much like Puerto Rico. The truth is that the first U.S. Marines actually landed in Port-au-Prince in 1914, and U.S. warships had for the past 50 years docked in and around Haiti in order to protect the U.S.'s interests and the region's stability, according to government spokespeople. It was under this same pretense that U.S. President Woodrow Wilson called for an invasion of the island. The reality is, of course, far more self-serving than that. Haiti had just elected Rosalvo Bobo, a man who had led a cane-cutter's rebellion against the U.S. presence on Haiti well before the invasion. And he was determined to not only prevent U.S. corporations from operating on Haitian soil, but was also adamant that Haiti would not repay its staggering debt to Washington. For much of the latter half of the 19th century and into the 20th, consecutive Haitian regimes had taken vast amounts of money in the form of loans from US banks, considering that their own economy had been crippled by international isolation and dependence upon sugar for export. Once US banks learnt of Bobo's planned policies, they reacted with outrage and the ironically named Operation Uphold Democracy was put into effect. Once the U.S. Marines landed and established control by virtue of the superior firepower, some of the most disastrous policies in Haiti's history were implemented, which continue to plague the nation today. The United States seized key institutions, including Haiti's Customs House, as well as all its banks. Under Washington's yoke, Haiti's banks were forced to allocate 40% of their total income to the so-called reparations payments to France and the U.S., Now these reparations payments worked in the way so as which the colonial subject was forced to pay the colonizer through blackmail and bullying. This all but froze Haiti's development for the next nineteen years, condemning the island to poverty, and a de facto US dictatorship ruled with an iron fist until 1934. Bobo, the president who insisted on ending Haiti's civility to the US, was removed from power by the dictatorship, and US Stooge Philippe Soudre Dartigano was installed. Real power, of course, lay with the High Commissioner chosen directly from the ranks of the U.S. Marines. Following the illegal change of president, the U.S. government dissolved the Haitian Parliament and forced a new constitution upon the island. A constitution that emphasised the fact that land could now be purchased by foreign companies. This was illegal under even the most reactionary of Haitian presidents during the revolutionary period. Additionally, the U.S. gave itself total veto power over all government decisions in Haiti. Conscription became mandatory, with the U.S. forcing Haitians to work on public projects as slave labor, with no pay and under horrific conditions. The final nail in the coffin for Haiti was U.S. demands to transition to a total dependence on coffee for export. This toxic cocktail of policies utterly ruined Haiti, and almost the entire population came to resent the U.S. presence deeply. Even the elite hated the U.S. for controlling every aspect of their economy. Blade and American racism only made rebellion inevitable. Known as the Kakos for the colour of their skin, thousands of impoverished Haitians took up the fight against the US military dictatorship. Thousands of Haitians were interned in military concentration camps and countless others were tortured and massacred by the US Marines. As journalist and civil rights activist Herbert Seligman stated, machine guns have been turned into crowds of unarmed natives and United States Marines have, by accounts which several of them gave me in casual conversation, not troubled to investigate how many were killed. Numbers now put the number of massacred Haitians by 1919 at well over 2,000. For a long time, just being a Haitian was enough to have you shot due to the horrific institutional racism of the US Marine Corps. When in 1928 the global coffee market collapsed, resistance flared up again. The U.S. once again postponed elections as it had done for well over a decade. Mass strikes and sympathy protests racked the nation and in late 1929 the U.S. actually bombed Port Our Prince Harbour after dock workers there refused to work in protest against the military dictatorship. At this point nations from across Latin America were denouncing U.S. actions and by 1930 the protests were so severe and widespread that the U.S. announced that it would be withdrawing and elections were scheduled for 1930. The elections went ahead and delivered a resounding victory to the anti-American nationalist Steny Vincent. So the US left Haiti with an illiteracy rate of close to 100%, dependent on a single export and control of its key financial institutions in the hands of a foreign power. Yes, the US continued to exert control of Haiti's banks officially until 1947, though really until the early 1950s. Unfortunately, the reach of the U.S. did not end there. After a series of wealthy landowners and military men exchanged the reins of leadership over the next few decades, a certain Francois Duvalier was elected in 1957. His rule would not remain democratic for long, though, and even this election was fraught with controversy. After outlawing other political parties and winning the subsequent uncontested election in nineteen sixty one, Duvalier would come to preside over one of the most brutal dictatorships in Latin America, if not the world. In excess of sixty thousand people were killed by the so-called president for life, under whose rule torture, rape, and terrible violence became commonplace. Fort de Manque prison in Port-au-Prince was notorious for the horrific treatment of prisoners, many of whom never came out alive. An extermination campaign was launched against communism, in which even suspected communists were executed and their land confiscated. These activities were often undertaken by the Tonton Macoute, Makut, a secret police force named after voodoo mythology. Duvalier clearly played on the superstitions of the Haitian populace to instill fear in his regime. Corruption became an art form in Haiti during this period, with millions of dollars being siphoned from foreign aid and the public sector by Duvalier and his cronies. One UN loan of $15 million was put directly into the President's bank account. The US came to be one of his most loyal backers, funnelling immense amounts of money to keep his regime afloat. Francois died in 1971 from heart disease. The nightmare, however, was just beginning as his son, known as Baby Doc in the vein of his father's moniker, Papa Doc, took over the country as President for Life at the age of 19. Baby Doc was just as brutal as his father, and his penchant for embezzlement and corruption was even more evident. Baby Doc embezzled up to 80% of Haiti's foreign aid, continued the brutal repression of dissidents, and his personal debts accounted for 45% of the nation's total debt. All throughout Baby Doc's reign, the US was by his side, helping maintain his grip on power. 120 million dollar US and IMF provided loan was divided as follows. 4 million dollars was given to the Tonton Macou paramilitary force and the other 16 million dollars was sold illegally to the South African apartheid regime. The US knew exactly how Baby Doc spent this money but did not complain once. By 1986 conditions were so dire and hatred towards the Duvalier family so virulent that Baby Doc had no choice but to leave. Even the Catholic Church and certain sectors of the military were tired of his blatant corruption and violence. A US plane set out from Guantanamo Bay to pick up the President and his inner circle, as well as the loot he had pillaged from his own nation. Estimates put the amount at around $900 million that Baby Doc had stolen from Haiti. He lived comfortably in Cannes, France, for many years, returning to Haiti in the early 2000s, after which he quite quickly died from a heart attack. After a botched election in 1987 marred by violence, the 1990 elections are widely regarded as the first honest ones in Haiti's history. And it was Jean Bertrand Aristide, a former president of humble origins, a former priest, sorry, of humble origins, who took power in the election with 67% of the popular vote. Aristide was determined to implement some seriously progressive social reforms that would see Haitians remember him fondly for years to come. He nationalised certain industries, made education and healthcare widely accessible to all, and attempted to make the military a civilian-led body. The reaction in 1991 was a military coup that deposed Aristide. The military regime, Emmanuel Constant, brutally repressed supporters of Aristide's left-wing Lavalas party and relied almost entirely on U.S. aid and the illicit drug trade to sustain its economy. Protests rocked not only Haiti, but many U.S. and Canadian cities as well, where substantial expatriate populations composed of those who fled the Duvalier era resided. In New York alone, over 250,000 Haitian expats protested against the military regime, as well as CIA involvement in supporting it. Aristide was promptly returned to the country, and he once again won in a landslide election in 2000. He won with 92% of the vote. During this period, he demanded reparations from France, expanded his education and healthcare programs, and significantly deepened ties with both Venezuela and Cuba in a bid to bring integration to the Caribbean. Most significantly, he decided to completely dismantle the military. He redistributed large landholdings to the peasantry, subsidising their activities, raised the minimum wage, and aggressively pursued taxation of the nation's elite. There was, of course, yet another US-backed coup in the works. With direct support from the CIA, drug traffickers in the city of Gunaivez and the Haitian elite, ex-army members formed paramilitary groups that terrorised the nation, and with no standing army, they were able to overthrow Aristide. He was kidnapped by the Americans and the French and flown against his will all the way to the Central African Republic. The involvement of the CIA in this episode is now well documented. That same year saw the beginning of a UN mission on the island that has, ironically, only worsened conditions on Haiti and acts as a direct tool of US imperial ambitions. UN forces massacred 8,000 supporters of Aristide and the Lavalis party in direct cooperation with the paramilitaries who overthrew him. And hundreds of UN soldiers have been implicated in murders, extortions and rape, including of children. Moreover, the UN mission on Haiti's soil is actually illegal. UN occupations are only deemed legal in countries where there is a war or where there is a threat to international peace and stability. Haiti fit neither of these categories, yet the UN has remained here since 2004 with heavy ordnance weaponry, used primarily against civilians. This is all the more outrageous when we consider the UN's shameful manipulation of elections since 2004, well known in Haiti, but not in the rest of the world. In the 2010-2011 elections, at the behest of the US and European Union, the UN fixed electoral boundaries so as to exclude 80% of the electorate, which brought right-wing neoliberal President Michel Martelly to power. As for the 2015 elections, international observers found that the UN had included a zombie vote of 77%. In other words, the UN had faked 77% of the vote. This is a shameless portrayal of the Haitian people and clearly demonstrates the hypocrisy and corruption of the United Nations, which in this case was literally a tool of imperial interests. Now, with unemployment having risen to over 85% under consecutive UN-backed regimes and a blatantly neoliberal economic agenda, Haitians have had enough. Hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of Haitians, have come out in force on the streets this year to protest the fraudulent regime at the helm of the country, driving Haiti to a standstill. The democratic sector, an alliance of progressive parties and organisations, including Lavalas and led by an Aristide supporter – have demanded the resignation of President Moïse Jovenel, an end to the UN occupation and a chance to implement a socially minded program for Haiti's many poor. Vast swathes of the population are united behind this movement and it is heartening to see that despite the terrible history of betrayal and violence that Haiti has been forced to endure, they are fighting back and more determined than ever to realise the original goals of the Haitian revolution. Fraternity, sovereignty and equality for all. Quite sadly, a lot of Haitians who fled Duvalier naturally went to the United States as that was the closest place that they perceived had the most stability and a lot of Haitians weren't actually admitted into the US as citizens for a long time because the Haitians leaving weren't deemed to be of the correct political character. So they were still letting in um, Cuban right-wing Cuban expats at this time but a lot of Haitians fleeing the right-wing dictatorships in Haiti were not allowed to enter the United States. Would you be
1: surprised... And thanks to Sasha, and do listen to the Latin American Update program every Sunday at 10.30 here on 3CR. While the Australian Federal Government continues the pressure on outback Australian communities to accept the construction of both low- and high-level radioactive materials dumps, in Turkey the pressure is also coming from the growing authoritarian government there to build commercial nuclear power plants. Today, we look at the history of not only the push in Turkey for nuclear power plants, but the history of the anti-nuclear movement there, and also the fact that for more than 50 years, Turkey has been a quiet custodian of US tactical nuclear weapons. And to do this, I was joined by Pinar Demarkin, anti-nuclear activist, a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at Mimar Sinan Art University. She's also the climate and energy editor of the Green Newspaper and a grassroots environmental activist and journalist. Pino, can we first focus on the anti-nuclear movement in Turkey? What was happening in the mid-70s which led to its formation and who were those concerned citizens?
7: In Turkey, the anti-nuclear movement started in uh, 1974. Uh, So since then, uh, the government of Turkey, actually governments of Turkey in the years, in decades, uh, have been trying hard to have nuclear power plant. And the method they used was bidding system, tender. They opened tenders, announced it, and the companies were interested in. But for the first time in 2010, the government, present government, which has been ruling since uh, 2002, just decided a different type of agreement, which was intergovernmental agreement. This happened for the first time in Turkey, actually in the world, not only in Turkey. Uh, So this means that one government agrees with another uh, government, shakes hands, and this kind of agreement is above constitution. What other government? Uh, Turkey signed the first intergovernmental agreement with Russia, government of Russia. This is something above the constitution, which means that citizens have no right to oppose it. And what, what reaction to that? Through the constitution, we were, uh, I mean the citizens, were unable to react it, uh, unable to put it into court, uh, for example, in terms of uh, nature rights or in terms of some other constitutional uh, rights, for the, like uh, living in a healthy environment is a regulation in the law, uh, you know, in the Constitution actually. Uh, Act uh, 56 gives you the, such a uh, right uh, to, to defend. But uh, this uh, kind of agreement also violates other international agreements, such as Rio and Barcelona, which were signed in 1990s just to save the nature. Like there's a river, uh, Göksu River in Turkey, very close to Akkuyu, to protect this uh, wonderful uh, nature land. Uh, this agreement was signed between Mediterranean countries and Turkey. But Turkey also violated this international agreement by signing its nuclear agreement.
1: What was going on in Turkey that they, the governments believed that they could get away with this? Other countries aren't doing it like that. Why
7: Turkey? Yeah, uh, I, I should also say that the 2010 was the beginning. Secondly, we had one more intergovernmental agreement for SINOP. It was uh, with Japan. And uh, it's strange that, you know, Fukushima happened in 2011, but despite of this fact, our government signed an other intergovernmental agreement with the government of Japan, who is responsible of Fukushima, Japanese government. So this government signed an agreement to have nuclear power plant established in Sinop and with the Japanese government. What happened with those agreement is there any work being
1: done or
7: yes uh, for both agreements actually in the area of uh, in the city of Sinop and Mersin Mersin is the one signed the agreement uh, signed uh, with uh, Russian Sinop is the one on Black Sea coast signed uh, with the Japanese. But Japanese agreement is cancelled now because uh, due to Fukushima uh, rising costs, Japan, the government of Japan, just cancelled all overseas projects. But, for example, next month the government of Turkey will decide following process how to go on for this nuclear power plant project about Akkuyu the one on the Mediterranean coast signed with Russian. Actually, the construction, first uh, reactor construction has started one year ago. And uh, Turkey is an earthquake area, earthquake country. 99 of uh, fault lines are active and very dangerous. I'm also a member of NONUX Asia Forum, uh, which includes many Asian actually activists of those countries from Asia, like India, uh, and, uh, Taiwan, Thailand, Japan. Is, uh, Turkey also is in Asia, as well as it's in Europe. So I'm a member of this group, and uh, we are uh, exchanging information about Asia, and I totally suggest the idea of putting uh, some pressure on uh, International Atomic Energy Agency to avoid some countries having nuclear power plants due to earthquake possibility. And that is in Turkey, there is a, the possibility. Turkey is one of them, India is the other, and uh, Taiwan also, fault line is just under the nuclear power plant in Taiwan. So in Turkey, uh, we know that for Akku, the one on the Mediterranean coast, has a fault line just 30 kilometers away. Scientists also, even the ones who gave permission for land license, are opposing now to uh, this project. Akkuyu nuclear project. Because um, I should say one more thing about this earthquake issue. Uh, you know, Fukushima happened and all reactors were closed. For what? For another risk, uh, due to another risk of earthquake. The earthquake triggered uh, tsunami and both caused a, a nuclear disaster. So what we learned from Fukushima is, also, when new technologies are used, new fault lines can be detected. This is very important information, I believe so, and try to spread this information. You're Fukushima. Uh, yeah, because uh, the reason I say this, in Turkey, the land license for Akko nuclear power plant project uh, was given in 1976. How many years ago? Four decades ago. And uh, this means that old technologies were used to receive the land license. Uh, some feasibility studies are made, and old technologies were used. When new technologies were used in 1990s to understand the availability of the area, the feasibility I think that it was just a recheck, something like the scientists work on it. And what we got from this research was um, even 20 more fault lines were added. Yes. Another 20. Yes, in nineties, 1990s, another 20. The number of fault lines were increased when looked with new technologies. And now we are in 2019. So if any other research is made it's uh, probably will be near fault lines there what's the government's reactions when people point this
1: out to them that this could be this it'll be a catastrophe what did they say
7: you know turkey is a country who uh, had uh, chernobyl effects uh, because uh, despite the cloths fully uh, on Turkey from 2,000 uh, kilometers away, we were affected, especially Black Sea coast. Was and the people very much remember affected. That. Yeah. In that time, the politicians were saying some radiation is even good for health, uh, nothing will be happening, don't be afraid, etc. Something like this. Yeah. And pres- in 2017, our president of Turkey said that there are many things to uh, shorten human life, uh, such as possibility of another explosion, a tube gas explosion can be uh, a reason for you to die, uh, or some accident. Plane can also fall down. This kind of things. But I mean, Chernobyl affected 8 million people in Europe, and this is endless. Even unborn children are under uh, risk. In Turkey, between the years 1978 uh, and 1994, uh, there were 3,000 children. I mean, we got this news later. 3,000 children were dead, born with uh, birth uh, defects. The governments should take their responsibility. Um, They don't take their responsibility after uh, some accident happens, but before it, there's a chance to avoid it. Who is behind the government pushing the government to bring in nuclear power? Who are the bodies? Good question. Very good question. This is uh, a global problem. Nuclear power plants are organized globally. There is International Atomic Energy Agency, which was established in uh, 1940s, actually 50s. Countries are member of this and governments are following uh, very closely. And uh, before, developed countries used to have uh, nuclear power plants. I mean, industrially dev- developed countries. For example, Germany. Germany is a country who, um, Got um, industrialized through nuclear power plant. I'm sure they would be industrialized again, uh, whether they used another system. Because it's something related to culture. I mean, being developed is related to culture and the links you make. But beginning from the last uh, 10 years, I, I think it changed. So the direction of acquiring nuclear power plants have been changed on behalf of unfortunately, on behalf of developing countries like India. Uh, But India already have some nuclear power plants. But like Philippines, Philippines have never operated a nuclear power plant. There is one constructed in uh, decades ago, again, in the military coup times, but uh, never operated it. Presently, they tend to sometimes, Rosatom, Uh, have some information, we hear some information that Philippines should be operating this nuclear power plant, etc. So the developed ones now trying to export this technology. Uh, What uh, Japan did was the same. After Fukushima, they closed all reactors. Fukushima is never ending, by the way. I, I shouldn't say after Fukushima, beginning with Fukushima, I must say. Beginning with Fukushima nuclear disaster, which is still going on, actually, which is alive now. Oceans is under threat of millions, tons of uh, radioactive water. And also whenever there's a fire, the uh, radiation on leaves, greens, etc. getting into the air and spreading all over the world. We are still under effects of uh, Chernobyl. When it's invisible, people are not aware of it, but that it is there. For Japan I shall say you know, I visited Japan many times four times for Fukushima well uh, they started to import for the first time the nuclear technology know-how after Fukushima because they closed all reactors when they were unable to use it due to public pressure in the um, citizens pressure in the national borders they has decided to uh, export it to other countries developing yet Germany is is um, getting out of nuclear power. Very good point. What about the other countries in in Europe? Very good point. Germany should be uh, the uh, best example for other countries to get out. And Germany also shows us that it is possible to go on this life without nuclear power, because it's very industrialized. I mean, they need electricity really to run all those factories. They have automotive industry, they have some um, uh, washing machine or many, 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 uh, machine, machinery, housing things. But if they are able to continue all this industry by using renewable energy, actually it's only uh, mainly wind energy. In Turkey, we have huge capacity of uh, wind energy and solar energy. 185 gigawatt solar energy is three times, means three times more than Germany, ha- the, the solar energy that Germany has. It's already there in Turkey. Yeah, in Turkey. If, if it's established, I mean, the production starts and it can has cover it, all energy needs of Turkey. Has it started? Only 6% of solar energy is used. Governments are in favor of talking like energy mix, about energy mix. I don't know. This is why. I mean, Turkey is a country who is dependent to imported energy. Despite we have solar, despite we have wind, and it's getting very cheap, Turkey still continues importing energy such as coal and uh, natural gas. The uh, main uh, exporter country to Turkey is Russia and, for, for example, natural gas is about 40% used in Turkey and 99% uh, of it is coming from Russia. And our government is now giving big news by saying that all natural gas will be replaced with nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is local and national. This is impossible. I mean. Where this uranium will come from? Where? Yeah, where? It's coming. It will be coming from Russia, of course. And even though, for example, uh, let's say Turkey has uranium mines. We have, but it will be very expensive to uh, extract it from the ground. Uh, Let's say uh, that Turkey has uh, this uh, source. Why Russia can prefer to use uh, Turkey's uranium of course, they will use their own rhyme. Here, I will open a parenthesis to say this agreement, the entire governmental agreement made between Turkey and Russia, uh, lets the uh, Russian side have the land on the nuclear power plant and operate it. 51% of this nuclear power plants belong to Russia. And another thing, another very important fact is that the reactors will be established built on operates agreement. Uh, the, the name of it is this. So reactors is, are belong to Russia.
1: This is Tuesday home time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR with Jan Bartlett, and you're listening to an interview I recorded recently with Turkish anti-nuclear and environmental justice activist Pinar Dermekan, who was in Melbourne for a conference. So these are new
7: styles of reactors, not like the ones that they use in Chernobyl? Well, actually ER, uh, ER-1200 is now in operation in novo uh, reactor of Russia.
1: Just wondering about the the political connections between Russia and Turkey. Have they always gone on really well or have there been times when there's been disagreements with them, serious disagreements, yet they're going into this agreement on
7: nuclear power? If things go bad, where does that leave it? Yeah, very good question. We also ask always the same uh, question because do you remember the one the case uh, that uh, when Turkey uh, dropped one uh, little jet of uh, Russia? I shouldn't say little. Sorry, one uh, soldier is dead in that say accident, actually. But uh, the result is uh, Turkey dropped plane of uh, Russia, and this caused big problem, big political problem, scandal. It is. Mm. So how it was resulted? We as anti-nuclear activists, well, uh, I mean, thought that this um, agreement would be just stopped the n- Russian nuclear power plant process would be stopping, but it didn't. By saying that it's a business, they continued it. On the other hand, Russia uh, sent back the students from uh, Russia to Turkey. Uh, the government of Russia did this in order to... I think they didn't want to show that everything is perfect. There are some problems. They, this would be a good sign for government of Turkey. And again, uh, we had some trading uh, problems. Uh, There are many constructors in Russia belong to Turkey uh, as a country. They have experienced some problems there in Russia, Um, maybe taxing problems, etc., this kind of things. I mean, the relations between Russia and Turkey got very difficult. So uh, this shows us that even the project uh, was not canceled, it can be getting tough. Anytime, anytime if something happens. When reactors start to operating, very difficult conditions uh, will be appearing, I believe. And how close is this reactor to neighboring countries? Good question again. Uh, ESPO and ARHU's uh, conventions are uh, two agreements that Turkey has not signed uh, which cares about these agreements, which cares about the neighborhood countries actually and to give information through transnational border. For example, Cyprus, just 90 kilometres away from Akkuyu, the proposed nuclear power plant, and in case of an accident, will directly be affected. And even water is exported from Turkey to Cyprus. So other other countries, like, you know, there's a, an, another problem is the terror, uh, I, I say in uh, parenthesis, terror. Terror, ISIS bombings, let's say. We had uh, experienced in 2015 many bombings. And what would happen if we had a nuclear operating nuclear power plant? Even though uh, we didn't have, uh, many people were dead. It can cause a disaster for Turkey and will be a threat. It means that you have atomic bomb in your country. I mean, well, actually, Turkey is a NATO member and has nuclear missiles uh, which is belong to United States. And these missiles also are located just 90 kilometers away from Akkuyu uh, nuclear power plant. All these uh, will be called um, means equal to some risks. But our governments don't pay attention on that, and this is just the global marketing for them. And on the other hand, well, I was here for a conference, or Asian civil so- society studies uh, conference, and uh, there I highlighted the issue of neoliberalism. Uh, neoliberalism is very strongly felt uh, in Turkey in many aspects. For example, uh, companies have many rights in Turkey. They receive lots of incentives from the government. And a uh, nuclear power plant also uh, provides some incentives to companies like uh, business opportunities. Akkuyu nuclear power plant and uh, Sinop nuclear power plant are uh, taken under mega projects after military coup happened in Turkey. I'm sure you have some information about, you have some idea about this. In 2016, we had a so-called military coup. So-called? <laughs> yeah. So uh, after this military coup, state of emergency was announced and. Um, when the state of emergency actually it was extended six times at the end of seventh time Turkey jumped in presidential system from parliamentary system number of parliament members were increased but power of parliament parliamentary system was decreased so uh, presidential system gave the right to president to have some pressure on legislative and judiciary issues. Now, the situation in terms of nuclear power plant projects, in, um, the situation uh, for uh, citizens getting difficult because mega projects don't allow you to make environmental impact assessments. Not only nuclear power plants, but we have, for example, Church Third Bridge, uh, the Third Airport, some urban hospitals, which are huge and above the need, which is uh, not uh, made uh, to meet the needs. Uh, so there are some other projects, hundreds of billions they Well, in the situation okay. that you're talking about, how difficult it is, is it to be an activist? Uh, yeah, I will say this, but uh, please let me the continue the final word. Uh, the mega projects. Uh, cost about 138 billion uh, USD, and all are under the control of president. So mega projects gives the right to feed companies. This is how companies get uh, some incentives. Uh, in terms of activists, life is getting tough. When environmental impact assessment is not done, we have uh, no uh, legal way to oppose. Because for the project, when uh, the state of emergency were not appeared yet, I mean at that time, uh, we put uh, into court, although uh, we didn't have the right to put it into court through the constitution, we opposed through environmental impact assessments. And um, there were some uh, expert reviews also, but they were all refused all court cases were refused we have now two court cases on the constitution judiciary which were opened before state of emergency so they are still continuing but uh, i mean the uh, the doors to knock on are getting less for citizens uh, to go through to stop these projects to say a word about them
1: so there's no way that people can get out on the
7: streets uh, only streets and protests, but the whole no. way is opening to the on. streets. Yeah, you know, Gaza attack. It happened in 2013 in Istanbul. It started with the with the defense of uh, trees, some trees which were uh, supposed to be uh, shifted to shopping mall by the government, uh, but uh, citizens didn't allow that. Then, yeah, there was a big pressure from the police side. Police riot attacks happened. And such pressure, th- this is something also you see in Chile, you saw in uh, France with the yellow west and uh, some other protests like Arab Spring. When police attack becomes strong and puts a pressure on you, then it's, it can be spreading to whole country. So it happened in that way, and in Turkey, 12 people were dead uh, within two months. This is the duration of who attacks actually. Then uh, many people lost their eyes because the police used the bulb into uh, their eyes, and organs also. There are many injured people, permanently injured people. This is so pity, very difficult. Uh, getting more difficult.
1: Well, where do you go then? What's the answer for people who are opposing the government on all these issues because you are, you are facing or you could be risking arrest if you continue protesting? Well,
7: there are many you, are uh, volunteer uh, lawyers uh, working uh, through um, some legal uh, ways to solve the problems. But uh, since, uh, as I said, uh, the pressure on judiciary is felt high, It's not possible for us to solve, to overcome these problems. Do you have connections with, connections with similar groups in other countries nearby? International and transnational movements is a way to apply for, yeah. we we established some links. For example, I was involved in, uh, actually, I um, suggested this kind of meeting for Synop. Uh, the reactors would be built by Japanese and uh, French companies, Mitsubishi and Areva. In order to get more information about Japan and um, France, we invited uh, some uh, experts from both countries is important if it's international project it's important to get more information for Akkuyu I invited many times my Russian activist friend to give us uh, more information Uh, yes uh, what I learned from him is the constitutional thing uh, in Russia we uh, got a very important point that nuclear waste Will, will never be uh, taken by Russia when uh, the uh, reactor starts operating. This is written, this is something written in their constitution. So uh, this gave us the idea to ask for wa- about the waste more because we had solid and concrete information to go through from here. And then uh, because the government was saying, oh, Russia will take the uh, nuclear waste. So there's no problem with the, or no need to uh, pay extra billions for the nuclear waste repository, etc. But this was a big lie. So transnational information exchange is very important. And I believe transnational uh, movements, will be rescuing uh, the world. In terms of climate crisis, we can see this. There is no country borders. Globally, we will be globally killed. So we need to uh, get hand in hand together and move forward. And to also cancel that argument that nuclear power is a clean power. <sighs>
1: and a lot of people are pushing that. Yeah, it's very funny.
7: Yeah, in, in Turkey, our uh, politicians c- cannot bear to say that nuclear power is green and clean. Shall I say why? Uh, because uh, Turkey, uh, the government of Turkey just let 15 companies, coal thermal plant uh, companies, to operate without filter. <laughs> they are polluting the air, they are blacking the air, and people getting sick. We have to go to th- this mega project made, uh, big hospitals, uh, urban hospitals, to pay millions for doctors. Yeah. Anyway, the, the thing is that citizens are not cared much by the government, and the government is acting on behalf of companies. This is neoliberalism. This will be uh, the end, I think, yeah, if we don't stop it. All right. Well, can we finish on a positive note? <laughs> what is the move to stop it? How can you stop it? I'm here in Australia and I'm meeting you, I'm talking to you, so Australian uh, friends, uh, colleagues uh, are able to listen us now. We can just come over all borders, every kind of borders, I believe so. So international connection and transnational movement and uh, our interest to each other's uh, countries. Before that, I uh, talked to SPS, before our this uh, interview uh, two days ago, I met with SPS and I Talked there too, Uh, so we we need to understand each other first and respect our needs, even uh, we are uh, in different countries. Look, you have one third of the uranium mine here, which is supplied to whole world. So you must you must just prevent this uh, uranium export from here. If you don't uh, stop it, then it will be used in operating nuclear power plants which caused Fukushima, which co- and, and you know, the Fukushima nuclear power plant was using Australian uranium. This is horrible. This kind of uh, thing, that if we mention about nuclear chain, uranium is taken out, extracted from somewhere, transported to somewhere, and then a nuclear power plant uh, starts to use it in some other country. Nuclear waste is sent to Mongolia or Kazakhstan or Turkey, you know, we have nuclear waste in our country. We don't have nuclear power plant, but someone made the trade on it. Someone brought nuclear waste to gain money from it and expo- it's exposing cancer to environment. Just before you go,
1: how serious is the problem with the US nuclear weapons being stored on your country? Yeah.
7: Yeah, we, we make especially in 90s, there were many protests in Turkey to uh, get rid of it, but it's not uh, possible. My group in Turkey is, uh, uh, we are close to Greens, Greens Europe, and uh, we also informed them. They just, uh, Greens in Europe just uh, published a new report, nuclear waste report, and uh, it indicates that it's a huge problem in the world. There is no place to put this nuclear waste uh, in the world. It, mm-hmm. I mean, still, only Finland is making some, and it's, it's even not safe. How can we be sure that nuclear waste will not be just exposing some uh, radiation again? We, we can know this. It's hundreds of years, millions of years uh, should be uh, proceeded.
1: I think you misunderstood what I was saying. I meant the U.S. nuclear weapons.
7: Is that what you're answering? Uh, no, uh, nuclear weapons is, uh, you, you mean the ones in Turkey? Yes. I should say that we as citizens opposed it and still opposing it, but no way out. I mean, it's even the information itself is being kept secret. Just a few days ago, before I come here, I saw it on the news that Oh, there are some missiles in some countries. This kind of information, no exact number, no exact country name is uh, said. But if there's an earthquake, we are directly exposed to that. And they're all over Europe. Yeah, for example, Europe, yeah. Germany also had some missiles in Turkey. As far as I know, Germany took them back. But the uh, United States still have very difficult. When it's military, becoming military issue, it's more difficult to talk about. And nuclear is a military case. Military, political, and uh, this uh, neoliberal-related uh, issue. So big to discuss, yeah.
1: Certainly big to discuss. And that's Pinar Demikan, who was in Melbourne about 10 day ago, days ago at a conference looking at nuclear power and nuclear energy and the campaign to stop it happening in Turkey that's all for me for this year I'll be back next year in the middle of January go out with our wine offer make sure you get some before the end of the year, bye for now
3: Summertime
1: Summertime brings wine
3: Pass me my Prosecco patio. This year's Delicious Radical Radio Wines are generously sponsored by Breasts Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a grazed glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward shop. Breastwines is a 3CR supporter.